1: The following program may offend those with delicate constitutions, Baptists, FCC commissioners, and the former Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan. It's Friday, September 4th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist, I'm Mike Peska. The U.S. is at 187,000 COVID-19 deaths. And at the current trend, we should pass 200,000 deaths within three weeks. A quarter of a million by election day, is not out of the question. In a way, this isn't and shouldn't be a surprise given how poorly we've handled the crisis and how long it's been clear that we've handled the crisis poorly. This was all forecast. On April 1st, the Washington Post ran this item. Deborah Burks and Anthony S. Fauci, the leaders of the White House task force, emphasized that although the projection of 100,000 to 240,000 deaths were likely, they were hopeful that they could prevent such a high number by adhering to strict mitigation protocols. Mm. Three days before that, here is what President Trump said.
0: So you're talking about 2.2 million deaths, 2.2 million people from this. And so if we could hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between a and 200,000. Uh, we all together have done a very good
1: job. Now, I would say that will be replayed and he'll be held to account, but there's just so much to replay and he's rarely held to account. The death toll is, in many ways, inviolable. And think about how much isn't. In the last two days, the stock market plunged, but job figures improved. Trump has been raging about urban violence, but polls show his raging has had little effect. The Democrats held a convention. It barely moved perceptions. The Republicans held a convention. It barely moved perceptions. So we have in those examples contradiction, consequencelessness, and ambivalence. The issues that should be affecting us and affecting our opinions aren't, which is both good and bad. The cynical manipulation isn't working much, but the forceful rebuke of that manipulation has mostly been mum. Perhaps no minds are changing. Perhaps we have the appearance of stasis because we're being equally pulled in each direction so forcefully. But there is one fact and one fact of life that continues and accrues, and it is the corona deaths. 200,000 is notable. 250K is more notable and it will be noted. Unlike all the other factors, we are sure that these deaths and those figures will be felt. Hey, listen, remind me, and I will try to remind you when anything else bubbles up for a week or a day to distract us from this, the undeniable and intractable rise of corona deaths. It's really a bad backdrop for the incumbent who defends his actions against the challenger, who actually has the ability to show empathy and promise a plan. Will the plan work? To most Americans, it seems like it'll work better than constantly shifting the goalposts and spreading the blame. On the show today, Joe Biden was in Kenosha yesterday and he gave a major address on the economy today. We will actually dive into some of the things that Joe Biden has said have been derelict as far as that goes. But first, the second half of my interview with Dr. Rayshon Ray. If you listened yesterday, you heard us talking about his virtual research lab where he studies cops. He stresses them out. He makes them interact with virtual members of the public under realistic conditions. So he's back today. We get to the shooting of Jacob Blake and discuss the one perception that fuels police officer force against African-Americans. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could've taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dr. Sean Ray is a sociologist who runs a lab at the University of Maryland called the Lab for Applied Social Science Research. What goes on there, as we spoke about yesterday, is that Ray puts law enforcement officials inside and studies their behavior as they interact with the public under stressful conditions. But I do wonder, and asked about this yesterday, but pursued it today. To what extent will cops really be themselves if they know they're being studied? Specifically, I asked Dr. Ray, if a police officer knows that he's inside a virtual reality world and you're looking at him and noting his reactions, won't he be really reluctant to brutalize a subject in that virtual world?
2: No. I mean, it's, <laughs> wow. no, not at all. It's, it's so, I mean, that, that, I get that question all the time. And I'm like, no, I'm like, you all would be amazed. Like, and let me tell you why. Because this is what, what we have to realize. When officers use force most of the time, they have been trained to do that. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. And according to the law, oftentimes they are not doing anything wrong. I mean, we could think about Jacob Blake. Most people look at that and see a police officer shoot him in the back seven times at close range repeatedly while pulling on his shirt while he's getting into a vehicle with three of his sons in the in the car. They are still trying to justify that and they are able to use law to do it. So part of this is the fact that no, they actually don't. And that's why we get a lot of variation. There are certain officers who simply don't, they, they, they just really don't use a whole lot of force. These officers oftentimes, not always, like Shavin, would be a, not a good example here, but officers who tend to be more experienced, officers who have been in a lot of different settings, meaning that they worked in a lot of different neighborhoods in their municipality. And then also they are more likely to live in their municipality. So in other words, they aren't just coming to the community to police the community. They are part of the community and experience the community. But I mean, officers in our virtual reality program, they do what they do on the streets and they will say, "Oh, yeah, I would have shot this person right here." Or hmm. or you know, or they pull their gun. I mean, I'll tell you one specific thing. We had a group of officers fly in from from a southern state. Some of the officers, they were pulling their guns on the virtual reality characters. Now, the characters don't attack the officers. They do use harsh language. They cuss at them. They get mad. They yell at them, all that, like a regular person. So we escalate like the algorithm is able to escalate or de-escalate. And that's important for de-escalation training for officers. It's not like it's monotone. Depending on the officer, they get something different from the algorithm. These officers were pulling guns on the virtual reality characters. They were saying that they were going to shoot them. And when we had our post interview one-on-one interview with some of these officers we figured out that they had worked the night before hopped on a plane at 6 a.m hadn't eaten came to the dc area got in a uber taxi lift whatever came to campus did this program and you know what they were exhausted they were hungry they were stressed and everyone knows when you are under when you are stressed when you're hungry when you're tired you know what you do you make bad decisions you yell at people you throw stuff Again, when police officers do this, they have guns and they can hurt people. And there's no such thing as a justified shooting in the in your
1: virtual world, you're telling me.
2: No, no, I, no. I think most officers would say, no, There, there isn't a justified shooting. But I will say we have some scenarios where they are use of force scenarios. And in those scenarios, yes, I think that there would be a justifiable shooting. Part of what the point and this is very similar to their shoot, don't shoot scenarios that they already use. And we mimic these on purpose for virtual reality at first. And then we realized that they were limiting. What these programs mm-hmm. do is, is that the virtual reality characters, they just keep escalating. They just keep escalating. And the officers have to calm this person down and disarm them. Well, you know what? Like sometimes that happens, but not always. But you know the problem? If officers are training That everybody who they encounter has a weapon when less well less than nine out of 10 times. That's not true. The person does not have a weapon. Doesn't mean that they can't use their physical bodies as a weapon, but they don't have a weapon. But if officers are overwhelmingly training as if people have a weapon, when they show up and they say, I seen a weapon or I fear for my life or they had a weapon. It makes sense why they respond that way. It doesn't mean that we justify it. As a sociologist, my job is to understand it. And so part of it is I understand why they react that way. The problem come in is that they are more likely to view black people as having weapons than they are with white people. And that is where the bias really comes in. Well, also, every time a police officer interacts with someone, there is
1: a weapon present, and that is the police officers, and that becomes part of the justification and also the legitimate fear. I could be disarmed. I could be tased. I could be punched. And then my weapon is taken and used against me.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it's similar to what we've seen with Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. Right. You know, the bottom line is this. To me, it's real simple. Police officers exhibit more bias against black people than white people. Police Mm -hmm. officers are more likely to associate weapons with black people versus white people. And then the outcome is that black people are three point five times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking or when they do not have a weapon. That is the link between officers' attitudes and their behaviors, and that is the fundamental thing that we are trying to do something about. If we, I think if you do something about one of the worst case scenarios, particularly when it comes to something like policing, then you simultaneously can start to impact downstream type of outcomes like bias, like who they stop, like whose car they search, like who they use force on, and then, of course, ultimately, who they end up killing And these are just fundamental facts that people have to admit that overwhelmingly when police officers encounter someone, they're not doing anything violent. It doesn't mean that they didn't do something wrong. They shouldn't have got a ticket or they shouldn't have got arrested or whatever they did. But overwhelmingly, they're not being violent. And so the violence oftentimes is coming from law enforcement as much as it is coming from the people who they interact with. I know
1: that there is some dispute about this in the world of criminology. Some researchers have shown that the reason that there are either that statistic you cited 3.5 times as likely for an unarmed black man to be killed as an unarmed white man, The numbers are a little different if you just compare the number of whites killed by the police versus the number of blacks. But I just want to make that clear. You said unarmed. So there is some body of research that says it's almost entirely an outgrowth of the number of interactions. You get more interactions, you're going to get more bad interactions. But there's another body of research that doesn't discount that, but says even if you norm for the number of interactions happening, it's still more likely for the interaction to go bad when it's with a black suspect. What does your research show?
2: Yeah, it shows the latter. I mean, you yeah. know, one thing I mean, I remember President Trump a few weeks ago made a comment and said, you know, white people get killed by police, too. Like more of them is essentially what he was saying. The lack of people's understanding of proportions <laughs> is something that I think about even with my kids. And I'm so glad that in third and fourth grade, they're learning this because, I mean, these are just fundamental things that people should know as adults that. There's a difference between raw numbers and proportions. Yeah. So if black people are
1: 14% of American society, that should be, quote unquote, the rate that they're being killed by
2: police, but it's not 14%. Exactly. I mean, there are more white people in the United States. So raw numbers, it's going to be more white people who get killed by the police. I have a problem with that too. Like I just have a problem with police use of force in general when it's not warranted. And there are a lot of examples where... White people get killed by the police and they shouldn't have. They're just disproportionately, There are just more of these examples for black people. It's similar to welfare. I mean, there are more white people on welfare, but disproportionately more black people because black people are more likely to live in deleterious neighborhoods that are under resourced and they don't have the same access to education and work. And so when we think about this, it's important to disentangle that. The other thing, though, is that it's also just a moral perspective, that there are some people out there who think that the use of force against black people is justified because it's perceived that black people are just more violent. Like, I mean, that that is the stereotype that black people are more violent and therefore is justified despite the fact that research shows that that nine out of 10 times I said, when people aren't being violent, that applies to black people as well. That in any given year, there are only about five to 6% of black people who are arrested for like anything five to six percent. But if you ask people what they thought that was, because people can't make sense of the disproportionality, particularly among black men who are arrested and incarcerated. So, you know, it's complicated. But the bottom line is this. We can talk statistics. I'm always down to go there for people. But then there is also a moral perspective. And the moral perspective is, why are we okay living in a society where someone can be shot in the back like that and we try to justify it, where someone can be underneath the knee of a police officer for that long and three other police officers stand around and not do anything about it. These are the type of outcomes we're talking about, where police can bust up in somebody's house for some sort of perceived drug raid, kill her, arrest the boyfriend for defending himself in line with the Castle Doctrine, and then all of a sudden just dropping all the charges like they've done with Jacob Blake as well. Like we have to have a problem with that. And a fundamental problem, I think that where regardless of people's political orientation, how they feel about this, I think where people get on board together is about the fact that regardless of how people feel about all these incidents, taxpayer money is going to pay civil payouts for these incidents because the court finds them wrong. The problem is that not just because of qualified immunity, but the interpretation of qualified immunity, leaves police officers and the police departments being absolved from any sort of financial and oftentimes criminal culpability that needs to change. When you watch the Jacob
1: Blake video or videos, there are a couple angles. I would say that most people see that and are horrified, and I know you are too. But do you say, because we couldn't see the beginning of that interaction, we can't come to necessarily all the conclusions that other people who have looked at that and say, that's all I need to know, that those people have come to.
2: <laughs> you know, um, I really like that question because you, you, you ask it correctly. Conclusions, plural, is really only one conclusion. At the time that Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times, did the officer have to use that amount of force? And I think the simple answer is no. Like, it's, it's really nothing else to say about that. It's kind of like saying, because somebody did something to me yesterday, I have the right to go back and do something to them. You know what that's called? It's called premeditation. That's even worse than doing something on the spot. Like, like, we do have laws in place that tell us how to view things versus premeditated first degree murder versus second degree murder and versus manslaughter. It's not multiple conclusions, it's only one. And I always find it interesting who we try to drum up those multiple conclusions for. When in the same city, A 17 year old white kid, because similar to Trayvon Martin, he was a kid like he's he's not grown yet. He can't vote. He can't go to war. He's a kid walking around with a gun and he had just killed some people. And who who, mind you, no one has said that those people had the right to defend themselves, too. Like those people showed up there. I would have been scared of them, too. And so all of a sudden, the kid starts walking down the street and what do they do? They pass him up. They just they just let him go. That is the difference between being black and white in our country. And in 2020, we just shouldn't accept that. That should bother everybody. Who
1: plays the characters or who are the characters in your simulation based on?
2: These are based on uh, actors and actresses who were hired. And what we do is we take them, they are professional actors and actresses. They record the movements, they record the audio. And then we take them and we transpose them into a virtual world. And then this is where it gets really interesting. We take a white woman, and then we make her black. We darken her skin. We take her hair from blonde to black. And then we test their images so that people really view and view them as white versus black. We do the same thing mm-hmm. for men. So then when an officer does something, we know that it's race and gender because those are the only things that differ between them. In fact, the voice is exactly the same. In fact, the person is exactly the same. We just varied their skin tone and what color their hair was.
1: Huh. Do you start off with black actors and then turn them white and white actors and turn them black? You do both those things? We do both. Yep. I was just wondering if I was a young black actor, I would be hesitant to volunteer. I mean, you need a gig when you're an actor. But if you've had thousands of cops interacting with you over the years, I'd be a little hesitant about taking that job. Then you go out on the street and maybe meet one of these
2: guys who says, huh, I think I've seen this guy before. (laughs) Um. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I think that could happen generally. Right. I mean, in, in their scenarios generally um, that aren't in a virtual world, you can really tell who the people are. And we have some of those. I mean, this is augmented reality. So it's actually the people um, in yeah. the virtual world. I, I think less so. But I, but I think also once um, actors and actresses hear what we're doing and why, how we're using it, I actually think they are more than willing to do it because, I mean, it's better than them playing a stereotypical role of a criminal on some crime show. You know, at least in this regard, they're like, "Okay, we are actually aiming to help officers get better. And I think all of us can get behind that.
1: Yeah. What is your relationship with law enforcement? Were you were members of your family in law enforcement?
2: I have several police officers in my family. I come from a law enforcement military family. My great uncle was the first black chief of police in my hometown in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. My uncle was a cop. I have a cousin who was a cop. Uh, my granddad served in two world wars. He was a drill sergeant, served over 20 years, Purple Heart Bronze Star. My mom got admitted to West Point in the 1970s as a black woman. I mean, this is the legacy I come from. Interestingly, though, this legacy <laughs> didn't even impact how I ended up studying policing, how I, how I got to policing is I was doing work on physical activities. And I started noticing how black men were less likely to be physically active in predominantly white neighborhoods. And I said, huh, what's going on there? It led me to the fact that they were more likely to be criminalized, that their blackness became weaponized. So even when they didn't have a weapon, it was perceived that they did. That led me to then studying policing. And I actually think that the law enforcement side of my family helped me to be more empathetic to what police officers go through because I understand that life very, very well. And I think it gives me a particular nuance that most people don't have researching this topic.
1: Dr. Rayshawn Ray is one of the co-editors of Context's magazine, Sociology for the Public, and is a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland College Park, where he runs the Lab for Applied Social Science Research. Thanks so much, Dr. Ray. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. You know what I have really been undercovering? This fellow from Delaware by way of Scranton, I believe it is, Joseph Biden, Joseph Robinette Biden. Apparently he's a nice guy and he knew Obama. If you did a search for Trump and a search for Biden in the Gist's archives, and you told me that over the last few days, the ratio of Trump coverage to Biden coverage is like eight to one, 10 to one, 12 to one, I'd say you're probably right, but I'd also say those aren't the just archives. It's a Tupperware bin with my kids' old art projects. Get the hell out of here. I know why. I know why there's been this disproportionate coverage. In news, we cover the fire. We don't cover the water. It's natural to be drawn to the unnatural, and that's what Donald Trump represents. Joe Biden is just trying hard to evince decency, which isn't the highest bar, right? It's not trying to pretend you're heroic or exalted, just decent, so he needs to be as decent. But it isn't hard when the president is calling U.S. troops suckers and losers, as he did as reported in an Atlantic Magazine story. So today, based on Trump's reported statements and Biden's reaction to those statements, I'll try to maybe even the ratio a little bit. So first, here are some strong comments that Joe Biden made today, excoriating Trump over the callous remarks he was reported to have made about U.S. servicemen and women who died for our country.
0: We have many obligations as a government. We only have one truly sacred obligation. Equipped and support those who we send into harm's way, care for their families while they're gone, and care for them when they are home. That's the only truly sacred obligation the government has. Duty, honor, country. These are values that drive our service members.
1: It's an all voluntary outfit. Those remarks were a preface to his planned statements about the economy, but the former vice president said he couldn't help himself from getting pretty angry. I'm always cautioned not to lose my temper.
0: This may be as close as I've come, this campaign. just a marker of how
1: deeply President Trump and I disagree. Biden is the father of a serviceman. Paul Eaton was a major general who spoke for many veterans and active duty military when he went on Twitter and ripped into the president.
0: I'm pretty unhappy with you, Mr. Trump. So I'm gonna keep this short for your famous short attention span. You have shown disrespect to the military on countless occasions. I am stunned that anybody in the United States military would consider you anything but a loser or a sucker.
1: The story hit members of the military hard because, A, it is horribly insulting, and B, it has the whiff of being true. Is it true? There's no way to know. But like missing mailboxes, which were just mailbox repairs, I wonder if the fake stories have more power than the real ones. Not because if it's a fiction, then you can fit all the details to perfectly align for maximum damage. More because when a story is unfounded, it prevents people from fleshing out all the explanations and with the gaps there the mind rushes in to fill them in usually the worst possible ways let me give you an example of a horrible story that was real but its reality undercut it trump's call to ukraine tried to prompt an investigation into hunter biden Really, an impeachable offense, as history showed. But because it was a real thing, and because it was picked over by everyone, all the motivated reasoning was at play, and people had the chance to point to one detail or another that hurt the other side's narrative. I mean, maybe Adam Schiff did say that his committee had no contact with the whistleblower, when in fact a lawyer associated with the committee had. Remember that nonsense? No, you don't. That's fine. You don't actually need to. You just need to know that it became another in a series of arguments over the sometimes messy facts. What the average person does with those arguments is say, I don't have time for this argument. I don't have the inclination to sort it through. And therefore, the story doesn't much move the needle. The point is, with real stories, with real facts, the argument never gets to become this perfect little brain worm that lodges itself inside your noggin and just screams out, this is true, this is real, this actually happened, this should motivate you. But if it's a concocted story, how do you knock it down? How do you knock down a story that aides heard President Trump ask of American soldiers buried in France during World War I, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. The Atlantic story also has taken hold because it included vignettes that psychoanalyzed Trump, explaining his fear, his personal fear of ever being a sucker and his confusion with anything that's non-transactional. Now, personally, I think Trump is the most picked over, deeply known person in public life. He's not a mystery. He's not an onion. There are no layers. Not talking makeup, talking psychology. But the public loves to crawl within Trump's brain. Mary Trump's book sold a million copies the first week. And by the way, Fire and Fury, the Michael Wolff account, was probably the second biggest selling Trump book, and it is full of all these unfounded, off-the-record accusations, most of which have never actually been confirmed. There is, however, I just want to note this one other aspect of Trump insults the military and how that's become this huge and... People see it as this potentially damaging story. So, yes, it's a horrible thing to say if he said it. If he didn't say it, he said very similar things. He is a horrible man. But, you know, he has said horrible things about Muslims and immigrants, the disabled, women in general, whole cities, whole nations. Special umbrage, though, is afforded the soldiers and the sailors. And I'm very impressed with the military. I think it's horrible to insult them. And when someone dies for our country, I really do think they died for our country. But one reason that this story has cut through more so than Trump's other insults is that public opinion polls show that the military enjoys the most respect of any institution in America. It's not even close. It wasn't always the case, but it is the case now. Another reason is that an insult to the troops is perceived to hurt Trump more with people who might not already loathe him. But I gotta say, loathsomeness is loathsomeness. And insulting Marines who died 100 years ago should not be seen as worse than insulting a sitting judge who ruled against you or the 30th biggest city in the United States of which you are currently the president, calling Baltimore a disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. So that was the insult of today. That was the Biden comment of today. But look what I did. I didn't even even out the Biden-Trump ratio. Yeah, I played Biden talking, but mostly because of what Trump said. Everything Biden was quoted on the gist as saying was filtered through what they call the Trump gaze. Every use of Biden was essentially as a rebuttal witness. I guess there's really no other way. Perhaps the best service I could provide in this space is to present the statements of each man in dialogue with each other, also with music. So here juxtaposed, Joe Biden speaking in Kenosha yesterday, offering healing and hope to Jacob Blake, his family, and the entire city also featured Donald Trump's description of Joe Biden's sanctity.
0: The words of a president matter. No matter whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, they matter. He's going to do things that nobody ever would ever think even possible. I thought you could defeat hate. Hate only hides. I, honest to God, believe we have an enormous opportunity. He's following the radical left Agenda. Thank God. You know that old definition of a firefighter. God made man, and then he made a couple firefighters. No religion. I grew up in a neighborhood. You either became a firefighter or a priest. You know anything. I May mean, bury you on the breath of dawn until we hold you in the palm of his hand that we meet again. Hurt the Bible. I'm praying that things change. Hurt God. It's the original sin. Slavery. He's against God. I said, oh my God. He's against guns I'm praying for the policeman. He's against energy, our kind of energy A black man invented the light bulb Not a white guy named Edison, okay? Uh, I don't think he's gonna do too well Tomorrow God made me present I can't guarantee you everything gets solved in four years But I guarantee you one thing It'll be a whole
1: heck of a lot better You can do anything
0: Whatever you want. Grab him by the f- see
1: Let us pray. No, really. I think I think we're all going to need to pray. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is just producer. In the virtual reality police game, she has to navigate the good-natured station house jobs of Detective Harris, Dietrich, and Wojo. The computer could not simulate Abe Vigoda lugubriousness, however. Daniel Schrader continues to produce the gist but worries what future generations will wonder of that decision. What's in it for him? Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is against God. No, wait, I read that wrong. She's against Joe Bluth. More because of the magic than the segue. The gist. So Donald Trump hasn't pushed back against the poisoning of Navalny. He's been hands off on the Taliban bounty story. He really still seems to be enthralled to Putin. I gotta say, I like people who weren't captured. Oomperu depru and thanks for listening.